Okay, hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I'll be your host for this interview. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and also maintain a private practice of chiropractic in Eaton, Ohio, at Essence Wellness Chiropractic Center. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. My goals for producing these research interviews are to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Dissemination of research findings is an important part of the research process. Publicizing these interviews passes on the benefits of chiropractic research to other researchers, chiropractors in practice, as well as practitioners from other disciplines. Another goal is to encourage collaboration of research to, uh, to promote future high-quality chiropractic research. And lastly, I'd like to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts uh, more interactive. All right, well, let's get on with today's show. And today it is my uh, great privilege to interview Dr. Scott Haldeman. Dr. Haldeman is a chiropractor. He has a PhD in neurophysiology and is also a medical doctor specializing in neurology. Dr. Haldeman is a pioneer in chiropractic research and a world leader in spine research. Dr. Haldeman holds the positions of adjunct professor, Department of Epidemiology at School of Public Health, University of California, Los Angeles, and clinical professor, Department of Neurology at the University of California, Irvine. He is past president of the North American Spine Society, the American Back Society, the North American Academy of Manipulative Therapy, and the Orange County Neurological Society, and is currently Chairman Emeritus of the Research Council of the World Federation of Chiropractic. He is certified by the American Board of Neurology and Psychiatry, and is a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Canada, and a fellow of the American Academy of Neurology. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Electrodiagnostics. Medicine, the American Board of Electroencephalography and Neurophysiology, and the American Board of Clinical Physiology. He also served on the U.S. Department of Health AHCPR Clinical Guidelines Committee on Acute Low Back Problems in Adults, as well as four other clinical guideline committees. He presided over the Bone and Joint Decade 2000 to 2010 Task Force on Neck Pain and its Associated Disorders. Scott Haldeman sits on the editorial boards of six journals and has published over 200 articles or books, over 70 scientific abstracts, and has authored or edited seven books. He was awarded the Honorary Doctor of Humanities degree from the Southern California University of Health Sciences and an Honorary Doctor of Science degree from the Western States Chiropractic College. He received the David Selby Award from the North American Spine Society. A resident of Santa Ana, California, he maintains an active clinical practice. On a personal note, it's been a dream of mine to interview Dr. Haldeman. He is a hero, and he has been an inspiration to me over the years. I doubt you'd remember this, Scott, but when I was still in school at National College in the mid-90s, I wrote you a letter Thank you for all you do for the profession, and you wrote a, a very nice response back to me, a very kind response. So. Haldeman, thank you so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, great. So let's go right in uh, to getting with the uh, interview questions. So Dr. Haldeman, can you tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor? I'm sure there are some people out there that uh, may not know your name. Probably most uh, most chiropractors certainly would, but uh, some some people may not. So could you tell us a little bit about that? It was, yeah, uh, it was a, actually an inevitability. Um, my grandmother was a chiropractor. And she is actually documented to be the very first chiropractor ever to practice in Canada uh, over 100 years ago. And then my father became a chiropractor. And so I grew up in a chiropractic household. And <clears throat> it was kind of one of those things that uh, I was always presumed to, it was always presumed that I would become a chiropractor. So when I graduated from high school, off I went to chiropractic school. That's great. So did you grow up in South Africa then? I grew up in South Africa. I was born in Canada and grew up in South Africa. 
Okay. Okay. So then you went to uh, Palmer and uh, got your chiropractic degree. Yes. Yep. And then um, I, I was reading a, a book about you by Dr. Uh, Reed Phillips, a biography, and it's really fascinating about all the different places you've been and uh, all the different places you've studied. So after Palmer, you went back to South Africa for a little while. I went back for another five years and did my bachelor's and my master's degree at the University of Pretoria. That's great. So what was the motivation to go back and continue education at that point? Well, at that time uh, throughout the world, but especially in South Africa, chiropractic was trying to get recognized uh, as a profession as opposed to just uh, what essentially was in the medical world, just a bone setter or a non-qualified profession. And uh, my father was president of the South African Chiropractic Association at the time, and he had been negotiating with the government uh, about getting licensure for chiropractic and recognition. And he realized early on that there was no, really no way he could communicate with the university professors and some of the senior medical specialists who were dominating the um, Ministry of Health in, in South Africa at the time. And so he said, well, if we're going to talk to these people and we want to gain their recognition, somebody's going to have to get involved in science. So he said, he simply told me that um, uh, I could practice, you know, 30 hours a week in the office and go to school in the evenings and continue building up my education. And so I went back and got my bachelor's degree and then went on and got the master's degree. So uh, while practicing, I'd say about 30 hours a week. Wow, that that is intense. Um, so at that point, uh, after you were in South Africa and you got your bachelor's and master's degree, you then decided that uh, you're going to go on and get a PhD. And I understand that took you to British Columbia. Yeah, first, first after, I, I actually did my point of interest. I did my, when I was doing my master's degree in neurophysiology, I, uh, I asked the department whether I could do work on nerve compression because the, the major theory at the time uh, in the chiropractic world was compression of, of nerves. And, but there was virtually no research on what happens when you push on a nerve. And so I worked out a, a, a research proposal presented it to the faculty and, and basically said I wanted to take nerves from frogs mostly and I wanted to record impulses in the nerve and, and then uh, decide what happens when you put pressure on them. And then I decided I wanted to find out what happens to the structure of the nerve when you compress the nerve and we did some work on that and actually led to part of the discussion at that time on axoplasmic flow, which was a brand new concept in the, in, in the 60s. And, and much of the work we did uh, eventually got quoted as being uh, important in, in the concept of axoplasmic flow and the continuing growth of nerves. So that, that, you know, that was a major stimulus at that time because uh, say they, they, although chiropractors talked about nerve compression, they did not have any basis for saying that it, it actually existed or caused any serious harm. Uh, the only negative component is all, all the research I did was in peripheral nerves and not in spinal nerves because of the difficulty in small animals to work in spinal nerves. But it nonetheless was, was very enlightening at the time. Public, ended up with a couple of publications in the South African Medical Association Journal, which were subsequently widely quoted. Anyway, after, after completing the master's degree, uh, I decided to do a PhD. It was, became evident that a master's degree doesn't allow you to communicate with senior scientists around the world. And besides, I had a growing interest in, started becoming turned on by neurophysiology. And so off I went to Canada to do a PhD at the University of British Columbia. I got enrolled there. I received a um, a, a small stipend from the university to do the research they were doing there. 
Fantastic. But before I went, yeah, before I went there, actually, again, some interest. Uh, before I went to British Columbia, I had to get my license to practice as a chiropractor in Canada. And Canada had this, or at least British Columbia, had this strange law that you had to have completed your chiropractic degree in four calendar years, not four academic years. And since I did summer school in, in, in uh, Palmer College, I was able to finish, uh, you know, which gave you four quarters. I could do the middle quarter every time. Uh, and I was able to do the degree in just over three years. And so when I arrived there, I realized I could not get licensed in British Columbia. The other thing is that in order to get licensed in Canada and write the national boards, you had to have X number of courses in, phys in the physical therapies. And so I, I, got, I was very fortunate in, in um, at the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, I was offered a, uh, the opportunity to lecture for a few dollars per lecture. Uh, by Don Sutherland, who was then dean of the president of the college, and uh, and complete uh, some coursework, which allowed me to write the national board examinations for chiropractic, and get my license in Canada. So when I arrived in British Columbia, I, would, I arrived as a licensed chiropractor and was able to practice uh, as a chiropractor all the way through my my PhD degree. Wow. <laughs> That is that is amazing stuff. I, I love to hear that. And uh, I don't know how you were able to maintain that practice uh, so much as you're doing the PhD. It's that's tough stuff. Uh, well, it was it, I was very fortunate. Uh, the, well, for, first of all, it takes a lot of hours. I mean, uh, you know, you're going from early mornings. Uh, you know, some of the PhD stuff was uh, you're in the actually in the laboratory, at least that I did. When you're doing animal experimentation, you, you, you keep going until two or three the next morning um, in order to uh, make sure that your, your, your animal model is, you know, survives as long as you need to get the data. Right. Uh, but I was fortunate that the, first of all, my, my mentor there said, I, as long as it didn't interfere with my activities, I could do, quote, my thing. <laughs> <laughs> and as long as I spent, you know, 50 hours a week at, in the lab. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough that two different chiropractors in British Columbia basically said I can use their offices without cost in the evenings. So I would practice three or four evenings a week from 7 to 10 o'clock at night. Uh, and then managed to get my wife was working and it wouldn't happen without my wife doing, working and bringing in most of the income. But nonetheless, um, uh, it allowed me to bring in some income three or four nights a week, uh, say from seven to ten o'clock, uh, from five to five to approximately ten o'clock at night. Okay, okay. So you you complete the PhD, and then was the motivation the same entering into the medical degree as it was to well, go into the PhD? No, it was slightly different. Um, what realized is I was publishing a whole series of papers in, in neurophysiology. And what became very obvious to me that if, if there was anything to chiropractic and if chiropractic had to establish a position, that chiropractic is essentially a clinical science uh, as much as a, th a theoretical science. The, the theory was important, the neurophysiology was important, but in order to, to become credible, it had to show that it had a... Uh, that there was some value to chiropractic. Right. And I also, at that particular time, there was no chiropractic institution. and no. I was the first PhD in a basic science in the chiropractic world. Uh, there was no, no resources, no background, no, no ability to do research in the, uh, within the chiropractic world, especially in the clinical world. And it was against medical ethics for a medical physician to cooperate with a chiropractor in any form of clinical setting. So it became very obvious to me that if I wanted to go and do uh, clinical research and to see the value of chiropractic, if it was one, uh, that I had to get a medical degree uh, because without that degree, I could not access hospitals, I could not access clinical trials, I could not access research money, et cetera. Got it. 
I read a, an interesting story Dr. Phillips wrote in your uh, biography about uh, a professor that you had in school that said, uh, you know, if well, I forget how it went, but basically it was, well, what if you're a chiropractor and a medical doctor? And then the professor said something like, well, you couldn't talk to the chiropractor inside of you or something like that. Uh, that was uh, pretty funny. Yeah, that was that was actually a lecture uh, by the registrar of the College of Physicians on medical ethics. <laughs> he, he was very, very concerned about that. But yes, it was. <laughs> okay, so Dr. Haldeman, you've authored more than two hundred publications, and these works have been published in the most uh, prestigious journals, such as Spine Annals of Internal Medicine, Spine Journal, Neurology, and really too many others to mention. Uh, with your background in neurology, neurophysiology, you obviously had a fantastic background to start addressing what you know, many chiropractors would just simply refer to as how chiropractic works. And you mentioned your study about the nerve compression. What other uh, issues were you thinking about at the time? Were, were you thinking about trying to do some large clinical trials to look at the clinical effectiveness of chiropractic? or? Well, there, there are two components of course, in any clinical science. The first is, first of all, whether, whether it has value, uh, the actual procedure has value, uh, and the second is, how does it work or why does it work? And the two interact with each other. Sometimes you develop a, uh, you do clinical uh, experimental work, and out of the experimental work, you su suggest that a certain procedure is worth uh, looking at. Other times, the clinical work you, you determine that something is of value, and then you try and figure out a mechanism for it to see if the understanding the mechanism can improve the way you, you function. So I, I started initially doing ex experimental clinical neurophysiology with animal experiments and looked at the nerve compression. Then my PhD was on the sensory nervous system. It was actually looking at glutamate as a sensory transmitter. And, and trying to get a feel for how pain and the nervous system works in coordinating you know, spinal structures. And then at that same time, I got very actively interested in the somatovisceral reflex idea and started working with Akio Sato on the neurophysiology of somatovisceral reflexes. But, that was, but again, what happened was, is when I was finishing my my medical degree, it became obvious that in order to become credible as a medical scientist, you had to have a specialty. You had to be board certified or a fellow of the Royal College in order to be to have credibility in the medical world. And so that's when uh, I decided to, to to specialize in the field of neurology, which was natural because that was my PhD degree. So I was asked, to, I had a few choices, I had invitations, because I, at that time I was involved in a number of different societies and lecturing quite a bit, and I had a number of choices in the uh, orthopedics and neurosurgery and so on, but I elected to, I was asked to come down to California, to the University of California, Irvine, because they wanted to do a clinical trial on the impact of manipulation. Uh, and. Uh, this had never been done before. There were no other clinical trials on manipulation of any significance. And they had a grant here from the osteopathic school to do a trial and a mandate to do a trial on spinal manipulation. But they had nobody who knew, first of all, how to do clinical trials, and secondly, how to do spinal manipulation, except for some old-time osteopaths. So I was invited down to do my neurology residency, and at the same time, to uh, become actively involved in the research project with uh, Drs. Berger and Tobis. And so while I was doing my PhD, uh, my medical, uh, my neurology residency, I was active in this research trial on spinal manipulation. Wow, that, that's really uh, neat how things just seem to fall together like that. That's great. Well, your articles over the years have addressed many contemporary issues within the areas of chiropractic and spinal disorders. 
such as clinical effectiveness, cost effectiveness, clinical guidelines, evidence-based practice, and certainly chiropractic theory, as you mentioned. I've read uh, many of the articles that you've written, and I'd like to chat with you about several of them. Um, and then after that, I'd really like uh, to find out more about World Spine Care and, and have everyone else exposed to that as well. So I'll just uh, ask you some questions about some of your uh, recent papers then. So one just came out a few months ago, and this was a, a paper of yours in BMC Health Services Research, and it was entitled A Systematic Review comparing the costs of chiropractic care to other interventions for spine pain in the United States. And it was generally suggested that chiropractic care may be associated with lower healthcare costs when compared to care from uh, other healthcare practitioners. But the methods used in the studies differed widely, and that seems to be a, a common thing whenever we do these types of reviews. Uh, and that definitely uh, limits the interpretation and generalizability. What lessons can we learn from this kind of study, Dr. Haldeman? Well, the first thing that became obvious when we started, when Simon Dagenet, Dr. Dagenet and I were doing this work, was how sparse the literature was. We anticipated seeing a reasonable amount of literature uh, comparing costs, because there's a lot of debate about this. There's a lot of a lot of uh, debate within insurance carriers, within the government, and within the chiropractic world about whether chiropractic adds cost or reduces costs uh, in the delivery of uh, health care and in specifically in, uh, in the management of back and neck pain. And there are a series, a small series of studies uh, one or two of them suggest there may be some improve, uh, reduced costs with chiropractic. Is actually one that says it increases costs with chiropractic. But what we found was the, the quality of this research was actually very weak. And that uh, each one of these studies followed a totally different pattern, which allowed you not to combine them. They had different patient populations. They had different... Uh, uh, methods of determining cost and so on. What the, the primary lesson is, is if, if chiropractic wants to establish a role and, and, and wants to know whether it's cost effective or not, it has to get more active in, in looking at the cost. Uh, the whole basis of healthcare now is, is uh, one of value, which means are you getting a benefit for the money you're putting into something? And, uh, and uh, it, so it, it's, it's becoming crucial, not just for chiropractors, but for anybody who's involved in healthcare, to establish that their service is beneficial and cost-effective. And what was clear from the, the review of the literature is that although if you looked at the trend, the trend seemed to be positive, but it was by far... It was a long way from to saying that chiropractic is a cost-effective care. Okay. Are there are there any particular studies that uh, stood out in terms of? Well, I, I guess you said that uh, none of the studies really were uh, very strong in terms of their methodology. How how would we go about cleaning something like that up? What, do you have any suggestions? Well, there's a, yeah, there's a whole series of of possibilities. Uh, the, the, there's a, a whole body of reach, research in the field of health economics. And actually, this is where Simon Dagenet was so very important because he has his degrees both in epidemiology and health economics. And you have to do a cost utility and cost effectiveness studies. And what you have to do is you have to take a population of patients, uh, and mostly it'll be back and neck pain. You, very hard to do general health because the idea of, uh, because people who go to chiropractors tend to be healthier people to start with. So you can't say that these people use less resources because because they go to a chiropractor, more likely that they go to a chiropractor because they need less health resources. Uh, but you could take a population of patients. It requires a longitudinal study. You could take a population of, of patients an equivalent population 
going to a medical community or regular medical uh, standard medical practice and a group going to chiropractors and you can follow them over time and follow their expenses and follow their their um, uh, their responses almost all the studies now are cross-sectional which means they just take a picture of what you're like today and it's almost impossible with a cross-sectional study to say that something caused something else in other words if chiropractor patients seem to use less money than those not uh, over the, uh, you know, at the particular time or at any point in time than those who are not having chiropractic care, you don't know whether it's because these people are healthier to start with or not. So you have to take people that look equivalent, follow them over a long period of time in a longitudinal study and see whether or not the, the intervention, in this case chiropractic intervention, yeah, results in higher level of health and lower cost over time. And that hasn't been done. Well, I guess uh, another study uh, hopefully will get underway at some point. Somebody will take that up and, and get on that. That sounds like uh, something we have to get done. Um, yeah. In a commentary recently in Chiropractic and Manual Therapies, you state that uh, the readers of this paper can take some reassurance that uh, the history on the localization of pain, tissue palpation, Provocative testing and range of motion testing remain an integral part of the diagnostic process. Furthermore, the authors uh, concluded that static motion, uh, static end motion palpation, and the demonstration by the patient of the locus and description of pain have reasonable consistency between observers. So this would seem to uh, cut out then the idea that manipulation of, say, the thoracic spine. Uh, for neck pain would be something that would be, I guess, a reasonable option. Many physiotherapists uh, have implied this. Um, so if the person didn't have a subluxation or a joint dysfunction or whatever we're going to call it, um, it, it would seem to be uh, uh, something that is perhaps not, I don't know what the right word is here, uh, not the best thing to go about. Uh, so for me, uh, discussions like this where we're trying to figure out, well, where where are we going to adjust? How are we going to adjust? What things are we looking for? For example, localization of pain and tissue palpation findings. Those seem to be the kind of gold standards in our profession. So, But for me, it also brings up other questions about, well, how frequently do we adjust? Uh, and perhaps other other questions about how many segments do we adjust on a given visit. And I know in, in guidelines, at least, uh, you know, some of these issues have been addressed, but I just wanted to get your thoughts as to, you know, what you were trying to get at with that particular comment uh, in that commentary paper. And then if we could talk briefly about how frequently to adjust and, and what the science is on that. Well, you, you've really raised about three or four different <laughs> Sorry. Separate, quite separate topics. Yeah. Um, let's deal first of all with the commentary. The commentary was on diagnosis or the, and the reliability of different physical examinations uh, procedures. And it, that's all it was. It didn't tell us whether these had any meaning. It didn't tell us whether they were valuable. It didn't tell us anything. What it did suggest, however, is that you should touch the spine in order to understand <laughs> what's going on, and that if you uh, that that when you you ask people whether the pain was at a particular area and you touch that area, they tended to say yes in a consistent fashion. If you palp did certain provocative tests uh, for radiculopathy and uh, you know putting the head in certain positions and pushing on it. Uh, in the neck, you could um, uh, that that would be that two or three people looking at doing the same exam would come up with a similar uh, uh, result, and that certain remain uh, range of motion testing uh, had reasonable consistency. So basically, we're saying that the, what the, the commentary was it was a commentary based on a scientific study by another group of authors, uh, which basically said that you can, that the average chiropractor, medical physician, physiotherapist can be reasonably confident 
that if they're palpating a location of pain and the, describing the locus and the, and the type of pain they have, are going through a series of these provocative maneuvers and doing range of motion, that these are reasonably reliable tools to use if you're studying the spine, if you're looking, if you're trying to examine the spine. And that's, that's actually a very um, important statement to be able to make because this has been the backbone of almost all chiropractic practice from the beginning of time. And it's a, and yet, there was, surprisingly enough, there wasn't a lot of research to support these statements in this practice. Now, this had nothing to do with determining where the problem was. It just had to determine where the pain was. Got it. The, the issue of whether uh, manipulation of the thoracic spine can affect neck pain is a totally different issue. That's a, there is a, there's one study that the Neck Pain Task Force, the Bone and Joint Decade Task Force on Neck Pain, uh, found that suggested that if one manipulates the thoracic spine, patients will have a lesser degree of neck pain. So you don't know under these circumstances whether or not the manipulation of the thoracic spine actually causes a, some maneuvers or some changes in the cervical spine or whether there's simply a radiating pain from the thoracic spine going up into the neck that reduces the, the neck pain. But the, the the idea that manipulation or adjusting the cervical, the thoracic spine may impact some neck pain is not unreasonable uh, because we have some, at least one study. It's not, it's not, it's by a long, it's a long way from being established, but we have at least one reasonably good study to suggest this is something to consider. Uh, the uh, the issue of frequency uh, and segments is much more complex. Uh, we're just starting, uh, people are just starting to look at that. Mitch Haas at the Western States Chiropractic College is, is actually doing some of the best research on this. And he is showing that, some, that a, a short burst of, if, you, if you're allowed to give five or six manipulations, at least my interpretation is that if you're allowed to do five or six manipulations, you want to do them in short bursts, three or four a week for one or two weeks. After that, it probably is no value. Uh, it has very little impact. So you do your five or six treatments, and then when they come back again with acute pain, you may want to do another two or three, uh, rather than do one a week for six weeks. And that was kind of what his, his studies have shown. And, uh, but that's very early studies. These are very early studies. Uh, and, and so we need a lot more work to know the frequency uh, whether more frequent early manipulation or less frequent prolonged manipulation or adjustments make uh, more of a difference. Uh, but we're starting to get some feel for that. That, that. At least we have something that we can hold on to. In the number of segments, we just have nothing. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, there, there's, just, there's just no research to suggest uh, that any one type of manipulation is any better than any other type of manipulation or one kind of adjustment is better than another kind of adjustment. What data we do have suggests that it makes no difference what type of chiropractic technique or physiotherapy technique you use. You're likely to come out with the same benefit uh, when, when measured three, uh, you know, one month, six months, one year later. So right now, uh, the... Uh, uh, an issue of technique and, and number of segments, uh, the, the best statement one can make is it, it seems to be benefit, manipulation appears to be beneficial, but it makes, it doesn't make much difference which one you use. Okay, great. In 2012, you authored a paper in best practice and research clinical rheumatology uh, regarding advancements in the management of spine disorders. And I know this is a, a focus of yours over the years, and you're an expert, certainly in this area. And reading, uh, reading that paper reminded me of the prologue to the biography about you by Dr. Phillips. And uh, in that prologue, um, actually written by you, 
Uh, you state that the spine, in your opinion, is the single most interesting and fascinating organ in the body. And so I, I got that certainly out of that paper. And, you know, with, with what's going on in the world, we know, uh, of course, that low back pain is the leading cause of disability worldwide, and neck pain is the fourth leading cause of disability. So from your perspective, Dr. Haldeman, what are uh, the most significant advancements in the management of spinal disorders at this point? Yeah. And go back to the, the comment, I still believe that the spine is the most exciting and interesting organ in the body. There's no other organ in the body that has bones, discs, joints, muscles, ligaments, central nervous system component, peripheral nervous system components, nerve roots, blood vessels, you know, virtually every tissue you can imagine is, 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 runs through or makes up part of, of the spine. And so it's, you know, I, the... the the one point I repeatedly make is there's no such thing as a spine nerve doctor or a spine muscle doctor or a spine joint doctor or a spine disc doctor. Uh, if you want to deal with spines, you've got to understand the complexity of the spinal structure in its entirety. But, but if we, we want to make the most significant change that's happened in the management of back pain and neck pain, in the last oh, decade or two decades. It's primarily the fact that we recognize that pain is probably just part of life, that you know, 80% of the population will have back or neck pain and uh, at some point in their life, and at any point in time, up to 50% will, have. if you just tap people on the shoulder and say, Do you have, is your back or neck hurt? And 50% of people will say, yes, at this point in time, my back and neck hurts. So pain itself is not the single most important issue. What appears to be the most important issue is disability or the perception of disability due to back and neck pain. And the, the, the biggest predictor of whether you're disabled because of your back pain is not what's wrong with your back or neck. It is the psychosocial setting of the back or neck pain. And and whether or not you, how you deal with it. Uh, do you deal with it by feeling you have something, not just you as an individual who suffer it, but also your doctors. Are you, are you dealing with it by saying, this is a terrible problem that's affecting me, and I'm going to be disabled, and I'm not going to be able to do things, and it, you have a fear response to the pain, and your doctor tells you there's something terrible wrong with you, and has to, you have to have 100 treatments of some kind or other, you actually are making this system work. At one time, I used to lecture, and I said, uh, when you're dealing with back and back neck pain, uh, there are two things that you have to be aware of. First is doctors are dangerous to your health, and that <laughs> I include chiropractors. And secondly, that lawyers are dangerous to your health because some of the greatest predictors of whether you're going to be disabled is whether you get a, a patient, uh, get a, an attorney. So if you get an attorney, just, just the process of getting an attorney is likely to double your chances of having dis becoming disabled because immediately the attorney wants you to make you sicker because the sicker you are, the more money he makes. Of course, the more money you might get as well, but you, you, pro you probably will never make up any losses you have from disability. Nobody ever made money uh, because of disability. Uh, if they continued working, they would do much better. But, they, the, but, the, but in order to prove your disability, you have to convince yourself and your family and your doctor that you're sick. And, and this is very negative. And there are a whole series of doctors, including chiropractors, who, who will feed you into this. You have to have 50 treatments from me, 50 chiropractic treatments, or you have to be on opioids, or you have to take five different medications, or you have to have two different surgeries. Or, and, and we feed on this, this fear of disability, and we make the problem worse. So we know that the psychosocial setting, your psychological approach to whether you hurt or not, and the social setting you're in, whether you have a, a, a workers' compensation claim or a personal injury claim 
or a disability claim with the government or a social security claim. All of these things make the problem worse. And it's this huge body. I mean, this is a huge body of literature, and it's becoming very convincing, which converts pain into disability. Now, it doesn't mean that certain disorders are not disabling. And it doesn't mean that there aren't that pain doesn't reduce your capacity to do things. Back and neck pain does reduce the capacity to do things. And sometimes you have to change what you're doing. Sometimes some things you can't do when you have pain that you can do when you don't have pain. But converting that into disability, it tends to have a very strong psychosocial component. So there's increasing understanding that if anybody who's dealing with spine pain has to be aware of the negative impact of psychosocial factors and deal with them as much as, and perhaps even more than, trying to simply get rid of the pain. First of all, there's no treatment has ever been found to get rid of back and neck pain in the majority of people who, who have the procedure. It might improve in the short term, and we may be able to increase disability, decrease disability and decrease and increase functional capacity and improve overall health. But chances are most people who have pain now are likely to have pain in one year's time with or without treatment. And there's a series of studies that show that people with back and neck pain who have pain now and then go through whatever treatments they go through are still going to have pain in one year's time. And, uh, and, and so that's a, a, uh, just a way we have to start looking at it. The other thing we start, the other major piece of information that's coming up is every time we run an, a study, we tend to make pain worse. So if we order an x-ray and we point out your degenerative changes or disc disease or subluxations or something that's wrong with you on this x-ray, that has the net effect of making the patient sicker and more and more likely to worry about their pain and feel less capable of doing things. Same with the MRI scans. The surgeons are probably better at this than anybody else because they will point to degenerative changes and say, now you have to have surgery, and if you don't have surgery, you could become crippled. Well, you're more likely, to, unless you have very specific indications for surgery, you're just as likely to be crippled after your surgery, or you're even more likely to be crippled after your surgery if it's been just done for back and neck pain than you would have if you had not had surgery. So we, the, the point that comes up is that having an X-ray and an MRI scan when it's not necessary is dangerous to your health. Wow. So, we, so we, we're, moving, uh, we're moving in a totally different direction. We're finding out exactly what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And we're starting to figure out that we can help people with back and neck pain, but we have to look at it differently than we've been looking at it up to now. That's great. I mean, that's what science is all about. So that's excellent stuff. Now, I'm going to piggyback on a co couple of comments that you just made um, and follow up on the issue of taking x-rays and things like that. Uh, in a commentary recently in the Spine Journal, you said, or you pose the question, is it time to discard the term diagnosis when examining a person for uncomplicated axial neck pain? And so I found this fascinating. And, you know, in, in clinical practice, which, you know, we both are as well. Yeah, it, it's sometimes very difficult to say to a patient, you know, this is exactly what you have. And I know some practitioners like to be bold and just, you know, they have uh, conf, you know, confidence and maybe overconfidence sometimes in the quote unquote diagnosis. Um, but what I'm getting from you is uh, it seems like we may need to change our strategy on this and really focus on more on, you know, what we're going to do as opposed to trying to figure out what what is quote unquote wrong. Does that sound right? Well, it, there, there's, there's a thought process that we have to go through as clinicians. The first thing you have to do as a clinician is, is do a complete examination, do a complete and detailed history, and have to reach a conclusion that there's no serious pathology. Okay? That can mm -hmm. be done without x-rays, without anything else, with the so-called ruling out the red flags. 
and every every guideline that exists talks about ruling out red flags. So you first of all say to yourself, there are is no serious pathology, there's no serious deformity. Now, if there is serious pathology and serious deformity, those are the indications to either refer or to go deeper into your examination. So you get rid of the red flags. That's about 1% of people who have back and neck pain. Uh, <clears throat> then you, the next step is you have to say to yourself, is there neurologic deficit? <clears throat> and if you, if it, in other words, is there a sign of myelopathy or radiculopathy? And you have to say, and this might be in the form of, of radiating you know, uh, sciatica or, or radiculopathy in the neck or back, or numbness or weakness or instability or incoordination and so on. And the clinical examination and history is actually very good of determining the likelihood of a neurologic deficit. And that, depending on the nature and the certain rules apply, you might have to do additional testing for somebody who has a true, a true neurologic deficit. The third decision is, from your clinical examinations, you say, okay, what I've got is axial back or neck pain. <clears throat> my back hurts, my patient's back hurts, my patient's neck hurts. Now you have to realize to yourself that you will probably never figure out why their back pain and neck hurts, or at least not the structure that's causing the back and neck pain. Uh, there's some, some exceptions to the rule, but most, in, in the, by far the majority of patients, you will not be able to tie it down to a specific uh, site of, of nociception of pain. So then you have to do, uh, you have to, so it's no point in making a diagnosis at that point because you're, and, and, and when I talk about diagnosis, I'm talking about a pathological diagnosis. So what you do is you make a functional diagnosis and you say to yourself, what are the yellow flags? What are the psychosocial factors involved? And where and how is this pain located? And that's what we talked about before. There are certain clinical findings which will let you determine that this is where the pain is. This is what the impact is on the structure of the pain, reduced range of motion, the provocative changes, and so on. So you have two components to the clinical examination. The one is the psychosocial, the so-called yellow flags, and the other is the, the things that might impact your treatment those clinical findings that are likely to impact the treatment you're recommending. And then, you, once you figure that out, you can now do, uh, you can now draw up a treatment plan for your patients, which has the highest likelihood of benefiting them. And that'll be a combined uh, uh, pain relief, which is uh, manipulation or analgesics or whatever you want to use, uh, a in a improvement in their behavioral function, stop smoking, stop drinking, um, exercise more, and in their psychosocial component, which is reassurance, education, getting them out, solving their, their legal issues, and so on. And if you do that, at the end, you end up having a patient who has the greatest likelihood of improving in, while under your care. Great. I mean, that's that's what we all want. That's for sure. That's excellent. Well, Dr. Haldeman, you've done so many studies over the years, we can't possibly talk about them all. Out of the stuff that we've talked about today, and thinking about all the other body of research that you've produced over the years, are there any key research findings that uh, you'd like to emphasize? I think we've basically gone over most of the key findings. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of research going on. There are thousands of articles on spine uh, every published every year, and it would be take forever to even talk about their relative significance. Right. Well, how about uh, World Spine Care? Can we talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, World Spine Care is, is actually my current passion. Um, what it, It's very interesting. We've talked now about the uh, the impact of spine pain or spinal disorders in the Western world. Now, in the in, in the developed world or the rich world or the high income world, depending on how you, you want to describe it, uh, we have probably too much healthcare. 
for back problems. We do too many x-rays, we do too many uh, uh, imaging studies, we do too many uh, adjustments, we do too many surgeries, we do too many, uh, we prescribe too many opioids and other medications. But we've found, but disability or, or inability to do certain things is universal throughout the world as a result of back and neck pain. And in many communities in the world, there are no resources whatsoever. So the treatments that we've just talked about that may be of value are not, value, are not available to three quarters of the world's population probably. And these people have no access to spine care. And yet, most of these people are finding life very difficult because many of them are in manual labor and farming or, or urban labor. Uh, and many of them, uh, and, and there's a much higher level of serious pathology in these people, people with tuberculosis spine, people, people with cancer, people with severe deformities, and so on. So it, what we realized a, a number of years ago, and a few of us realized a number of years ago, is that at this time there is no charitable organization anywhere in the world that has as its goal the management or the setting up of a spinal disorders management clinic. There are a few that have done, there's some surgical outreach programs which are doing great work for uh, uh, spine, uh, spine deformities. There are some chiropractic uh, uh, missionary groups that go for two to three weeks somewhere. And, and give treatments to people who, who don't have access. But we know that spinal problems are chronic and require a, a detailed management. Uh, and uh, so far, there's no charities looking into that. So we formed the World Spine Care Organization, or charity, and this allows us, this has uh, allowed us to establish clinics right now in uh, Botswana, the country of Botswana, and in the Dominican Republic. We have uh, a number of others in, in, in the works, maybe in Ghana, and in India, and China. And, and, um, and at least in our flagship um, clinic in Botswana, which has been going a number of years, we have managed to set up a clinic with the help of the Ministry of Health in which we do what we've just been talking about. We do an assessment of patients who have serious pathology, and we've had a whole series of people with TB of the spine, a number of deformities, a number of other serious problems, and they are. we set up a referral base for them. We set up an education program whereby we get people to exercise or do yoga in the community. We teach them how to uh, improve their general spine health, and then we offer treatments to give them relief, which includes things like chiropractic care uh, and, uh, uh, and mobilization and manipulation and, and so on, and, as well as specific exercise training. And we have a whole a detailed research projects, a number of research projects that are looking into the effectiveness of these type of treatments, looking at outcomes, looking at unique cultural components to it. All of these clinics are run by volunteers, and most, a large percentage of the volunteers, not all, but a large percentage of volunteers are chiropractors who want to offer more back to the world and to society and, and who would like to do charitable work but feel they'd like to do charitable work within their area of expertise. And we're seeing more and more chiropractors and others who are in the spine world saying, you know, I'm a spine doctor. Why should I give to a heart foundation or a cancer foundation when I could easily give to a spine foundation or a spine organization that helps people who have spinal disorders? So we have these two, we, we, we found a very receptive audience. We have now over 20 volunteers that have gone to work in the clinics some of them for as much as one or two years, others just for six weeks, and take care of people in these clinics. We have a whole series of volunteers who are doing 
administrative work and web work and getting involved in Twitter accounts and blogs and so on, uh, who are promoting the World Spine Care idea, doing fundraising. And we have others that are uh, out there setting, uh, looking for new places in which to help people uh, who currently have no access to care. So this, this, is, a, this is a major movement, uh, and it's new and it's unique. And in every place we go, we uh, try and make it sustainable. So we, when we, we hope within five years we can leave that community in good shape. So we put on conferences. We have an, our second Botswana conference coming up in April. And by the way, anybody who wants to go to Botswana and, and take part in a spine conference, um, they're more than welcome to do so. It's in April. Uh, and um, and they can, uh, where we bring people from around the world, supported by groups like the uh, uh, South African Spine Society, the International Society Study Lumbar Spine, the European Spine Society, all are, are providing support to, to put on these conferences, uh, which are offered without cost to all government employees in the community, in the country we go to so that they can give a higher level of spine uh, service, spine care service. And, uh, and then we uh, uh, arrange scholarships for people from the community. So we have two uh, uh, citizens of Botswana who are currently um, uh, studying chiropractic, and they will go back. There are no chiropractors in Botswana except one part-timer. And so they, these, two, these two new graduates will go back and with the support of their government, will begin uh, offering chiropractic services and take over our clinic so we can move somewhere else. We also uh, arrange uh, spine surgery scholarships or fellowships. And our first uh, spine surgeon fellowship from, from a fellow from Botswana uh, who's just done a one-year fellowship uh, at a, one of the big international uh, spine clinics in Turkey, is going back uh, in the next month or so to set up a spine surgical center for advanced serious pathology in Botswana. So we, we believe that we can significantly impact in a positive fashion uh, the, the, those people who are disabled from spine or unable to earn a living or unable to survive, function it as they want to, uh, because of spine problems. So uh, it, it, it's very rewarding. It's very exciting. It's a lot of fun doing it, and we invite anybody from anywhere in the world uh, to join us uh, in in one or more of our uh, ventures. Uh, come and volunteer at the clinics. Come and volunteer to ad advance the programs or to do fundraising or administration, or just support us in any way you can. Because uh, I think this is the, the only way we're going to help the uh, billion, one billion people in the world who are estimated to have back and neck pain at any one time. Yeah, I, I love everything you said. And uh, I am a member of uh, World Spine Care. I highly encourage uh, everyone else to... Uh, to think about joining and volunteering, how do they get a hold of you, or how do they actually get involved? The best way to get involved is to uh, go on the worldspinecare.org uh, site. It's just called worldspinecare.org, and to read through the, the the blogs and the Twitter accounts and the, look at the videos and get the feedback from the uh, various clinics. And then decide how you want to help. If you just want to donate to it because you think it's worth doing, then there's a you know, donate here button type of thing. If you want to get involved as a volunteer, there's a volunteer button, and you contact, uh, you, you, you get involved, and uh, uh, there's an email address that you can approach the clinical director, uh, and he will tell you what, what's possible from a personal uh, a volu clinical volunteer at one of these clinics. If you want to get involved in the research, you can come and uh, you can approach the research committee. If you want to get involved in, in administration uh, or PR or something, then you can approach. You can even approach me on that, uh, or one of the executives, and and just say we want we want to get involved. That's all it takes. Fantastic. And this is what we think we can do. Fantastic. 
Well, Dr. Haldeman, any concluding remarks you'd like to share with everyone? No, I, I just the, the I still think, as, as I mentioned before, that the spine is one of the most interesting, exciting organs out there. That spine disability is, as you mentioned, the number one and number four. It, it's more important than malaria. It's more important than breast cancer. It's more important than Alzheimer's disease in its impact or burden on society. And yet it's basically ignored by everybody. Uh, and, and it's our job to, to, to help these people who currently are not receiving any help uh, and, and to, to point out the importance and to try and help people who are really suffering because of their spinal disorder. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, Dr. Haldeman, it's been a privilege of mine to have you on the call today. I look forward to uh, to being able to communicate with you about uh, World Spine Care and hear all the cool things that uh, is going on there. It sounds like great research and just a, an amazing project. So. Thanks for, for all that you do, chiropractors uh, appreciate it. So we'll go ahead and wrap up. So uh, everyone listening, uh, thanks for all the feedback on the podcast. Um, thanks for the feedback on iTunes and people sending me emails. Uh, a lot of people have been downloading the podcast. So uh, let me know if you have a particular person that you wanna hear on the podcast. It's all about chiropractic science. We're just trying to get the word out to anyone and everyone we can to, to hear these uh, great professionals like Dr. Haldeman. So uh, next month we have Dr. Gregory Kotchuk who will be on the line with us and the following month we'll have uh, Dr. Cheryl Hawk. So uh, that concludes uh, the talk for today. Thanks again for being on. Bye-bye for now. Thank you.